Who are the directors? They are the driving force of the motion picture, driven by vision, by passion, and also every day by Teamsters. <laughs> they are the organizing influence, conductor, guide, jack of all trades, mastermind. In short, the one the producer blames. In the category of best directing, the perpetrators are. Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down. Robert Altman for Gosford Park. Peter Jackson for The Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of Evil. David Lynch for Mulholland Drive. And Oscar goes to... Hello and welcome back to Spro and Lead Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro, and our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today, we're joined by an old friend of mine and Lee's. He is an author, an educator, film aficionado, and a world traveler, Joe Lewis. How are you today, Joe? Great. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Very excited. You and I have known each other since the year 2000. We were freshman year roommates. And we could go through all manner of nostalgia and anecdotes, but we'll spare everyone. However, there is one relevant one I wanted to bring up, which was when we were watching the Academy Awards of 2001, you really wanted Joaquin Phoenix to take Best Supporting Actor for what I still believe is a very mediocre performance in Gladiator. Oh my God, dude. And How you remember? Uh, well, because it was Benicio who got the- Yes. And when he lost it. to Benicio Del Toro mm-hmm. for his performance in Traffic, you were fucking irate. And I, I quoted, I believe I quoted Benicio's character from Traffic. Yes. Every time I get pissed off about something, it would be the as correct. As correct. Yeah, as correct. correct. Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, projecting backwards, you know, Benicio put in a fine performance. But I, I still like, you know, Joaquin's done a great job doing the, the villain in films, and that was no exception. But I think maybe I was a little too gladiator crazy to see it for <laughs> that it was the greatest of his performances. The but. other memory I have of that same awards was when Ridley Scott lost Best Director, and they kept showing him, and you had your hands like clasped together, it, like you were praying. It looked like you were praying and you were rocking back and forth and you were like, it's all right, buddy. It's all right. It's going to happen for you one day, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I, I, I think I, I stopped watching. The Academy. I was just like so like frustrated after those, those last couple of years. I'm like, you know what? I'm out. Okay. And uh, that was actually my next question was going to be, I'm guessing that you don't watch the Academy Awards too much anymore. I watched them last year. Obviously, Dune was a major contender, so I was not going to miss that. But oh. I have not been watching. I've you know watched kind of bits and pieces of it, especially if there's a film that I really enjoyed. But yeah, I, I don't watch it as religiously as I used to. I used to watch every single year, maybe not necessarily the carpet walking, but everything that came afterwards, for sure. The carpet walking is for the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't have to assign gender to the No, let's not have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Sam liked the carpet walking, so I just watched the, the rest oh, of the course. But yeah. Stereotypes are true. <laughs> there you go. So we invited you here, Mr. Lewis. We gave you carte blanche to choose the award you wanted to take away. And you chose best director of two thousand and two, which means we're taking back the Oscar from Ron Howard. This is Ron Howard's first Oscar. He filmed A Beautiful Mind chronologically, which is a rare occurrence in filmmaking. 
Now this is one of Spro's favorite Oscar wins of all time, and one whose credibility we've been slowly chipping away at on Saltota. In fact, I remember criticizing this film all the way back in season one, only then to find out you harbor quite the love for this movie. Um, well, I am, uh, I'm not a good enough actor anymore uh, to be able to stand up here and make you believe that uh, <laughs> that I haven't imagined this moment in my mind over the years um, and played it out about a thousand times. So, uh, here goes. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, I'm grateful. Uh, I'm very grateful for this. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for an entire lifetime spent involved in this creative uh, process that we do. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm grateful that I was raised by an extraordinary man, my father, Rance Howard, and my late mother, Jean Howard. I also want to mention that uh, before my mom uh, passed away about 18 months ago, she predicted that this was going to happen for me on this film. Uh, well, she, she also made that prediction on every movie that I've directed since 1983. So now you know a little bit something about my mom. Thank you, Mom. Uh, then there are the loves of my life. Uh, my incredible wife, Cheryl. Uh, yeah, she's something. Uh, kids at home, Bryce, Jocelyn, Paige, and Reed. Uh, thank you for all the, uh, the most important reasons. I've got a, a, a great friend and, and, a, and a partner, Brian Grazer. Uh, Brian. Thanks for helping me realize so many of my dreams in this business, uh, including getting to direct A Beautiful Mind, which Brian produced so passionately and Akiva Goldsmith, Goldsman <laughs> wrote so brilliantly. Um, you know, everyone, uh, from, uh, from the decision makers at Universal uh, and then DreamWorks through to the entire production team, thank you for the incredible effort. It, it made the difference. And of course, I had a tremendous cast. This is an acting movie, and uh, including Jennifer Connelly and uh, Russell, Russell Crowe. Uh, this would not be happening tonight without your creative courage and your total commitment. It has been a great journey. I thank you. Uh, and uh, finally, I, they're, they're here somewhere. I don't know where, but, but thank you to John and Alicia Nash for si sharing your important story with us. I'm very, very proud to know you, and may you have many years of peace ahead of you. Academy, thank you so much. So, Spro, you want to speak to that? Do you still feel the same? I feel like I want to speak to the fact that you're being very clever with your words right here. <laughs> what did you. I say? We're talking about the best director. You say it's my favorite Oscar win of all time. Never did I say that Ron <laughs> Howard's award for a beautiful mind is my favorite Oscar. You You're want me to re-say it? Over. No, no. I want oh you to be honest with yourself. The, uh... Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I may disappoint you with, with what I have to say, but please continue. Oh, it's okay. We're going to disappoint each other in this episode. <laughs> love it. Bring I do love this movie. 
All right. So my own writing deals a lot with the human mind. First novel was all what they call a stream of consciousness story. First horror movie I sold was about a mental psychotic break. Last script I sold was about achieving the sixth dimension through mental synapses. I love stories that deal with the human brain. Love even the meme that says the human brain is a paradox because it uses itself to understand itself. I love the story of a beautiful mind. I really love Jennifer Connelly. I like Russell Crowe and I like the direction. Why do you like the directions, bro? I like the direction because it's simple. It's nostalgic. Sometimes direction gets in the way of a story, but like Scent of a Woman and When a Man Loves a Woman and Theory of Everything and name like other well put together movies like The King's Speech. It's just a legit film, not really stylized, just telling us a story. I like that. And side note, I didn't realize it was a Ron Howard movie until the end and we're going <laughs> to shit on him this whole episode. Oh, we or will. you will. <laughs> and maybe he thinks me saying he's simple will be him thinking I'm shitting on him but his new movie on amazon prime right now 13 lives fucking hell it's great i put it on thinking it was going in the background and i ended up missing my bedtime that movie was well put together as well he's competent at putting together (laughs) movies he's not like a who can i well i don't want to shit on them either he's better than some that are out there that Mm -hmm. are like still working and you're like why is this person still getting work ron (laughs) howard is competent yeah that's why he gets work and that voice man he's got that ron howard voice well like the arrested development narrator voice yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just hear that everywhere everywhere I go now like in my life. So Jim was a man on a mission, or according to his disappointed parents, on a mission to become a man. When I was rewatching all these films, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen A Beautiful Mind, or I think I never finished it. And then I was watching it. I'm like, wait a second. I have seen this before. I've started it many, many times, and I always, always turn it off midway through. I'm like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's the subject matter, too, with the mental health. It makes it very difficult to watch. Crow's character, who's obviously a genius, but also struggling with this major mental health disorder. And it's got a completely different pacing than the other movies on the list. I mean, obviously, the Oscar, I think, was just the safest choice of the bunch. I agree with Sprosty. I think Crow is great. Connolly is wonderful and absolutely deserved the Best Supporting Actress Academy Award. She was great. I think up until that film, you hadn't really seen her showcased in a film of that caliber. She's always been consistently good, but I think that really put her out there. And you just start to see her more roles after that. The film itself, look, I don't hate Ron Howard as much as a lot of people do. I do hate some of his films more than others, but Splash, Willow, absolutely. Those great Hollywood films. And yeah, I agree. He's a very competent director, a very safe director when it comes to certain projects, like The Da Vinci Code. That was a major commercial yes. product, but that's why you know they're like, okay, well, here's a competent director to blah, blah, blah. Same with the Solo Star Wars film, which was just awful. Oh, yeah, I like the Solo. It, it might deserve a rewatch, but really it just kind of lost me. Yeah, Beautiful Mind. I think my least favorite of the bunch, uh, and it's not because I think the story is, is is poorly written or it's poorly directed. There's a lot of great visual cues in the film. I like how they visually you get to kind of see how his mind works when it comes to you know creating all the uh, you know dealing with the numbers and codes visually. But then I just felt like a lot of the Ed Harris espionage spy stuff was it just kind of felt a little tedious and forced at times, especially when you just kept getting it again and again. I'm like yes, I get it, I get what's going on. Anyway, yeah, so it's just a really it, it's a very well made film. I don't hate it. It's just not my favorite on the list. It's not one that I would kind of go back to like I would with the others on the list. I would totally revisit and I have many times. You know what's funny about the script is when I was researching how to write my genius script, I was like, well, how do I portray this woman as a genius like the way that they did it for films in the past? And so I did look at the beautiful mind script and you're right. It's all the visualization. There's very little that he says where you're like, this man knows what he's talking about. 
talking about. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. But the visuals are great. It's a a very clever way to convey that to a commercial audience. And again, I like the story. I just don't go back to that one as much as the others. I think it just comes down to personal preference, really. But I, I would say it's certainly one of Howard's more solidly constructed films. I'm sure he would agree with that, especially uh, with some of the others he did following that. I did prejudice A Beautiful Mind because of Russell Crowe's absolutely awful behavior at the BAFTAs, which we've covered before, but we can cover again if Joe needs a refresher. Yeah, you know what? I was just going to ask him, like, um, I think he did something uh, fairly questionable, but I just can't for the life of me remember what it was. He was reading a poem, an awful poem, a very short poem. But he was cut off by one of the BAFTA producers, after which he proceeded to assault that producer. And this was around, in and around the same time, maybe like a couple months before he threw a phone at a hotel concierge or something like that. And then South Park came out with making movies, I, singing songs, and fighting I, around the I, world. I was just going to say, was this in the same era when he was making movies, writing songs, and fighting around the world? Yes. So yes, that would be it. <laughs> Wasn't there an Irish band too, Gaelic Storm or something like that? That's No, it was he's from New Zealand, but he had a band that's like 30 pounds of Glormp or something like that. It's a oh, terrible wow. No, name. but there's it's like, like an Irish band that their song is like the greatest night of my life was the night that I punched Russell Crowe. The closest I've come to ending up dead was the night that I punched Russell Crowe. The gladiator in the head. What was his band called? Oh, here it is. 30-odd foot of grunts. It's like he's almost daring you to punch him. He's almost <laughs> daring you to get, get in the fight Anyway, getting back to Ron Howard, Beautiful Mind is one of his better films. But if we're going to be honest, he's got so many more misses than hits. I think apart from a few outliers, the 80s were his best decade. Splash, Cocoon, Willow. This was at a time when his reach and his grasp felt simpatico. I think since the 90s, his movies have felt really, for lack of a better word, movie. And maybe that's what you were talking about, Spro. He's just very good at constructing films. So it feels conventional and uninspired. Everybody's work has fallen off dramatically since the 90s. Not mine. (laughs) Mine's gotten better. (laughs) But I do like Ransom, Apollo 13, really like Backdraft is still getting re-released in theaters on every anniversary. So he's got staying power in the 90s. But then he got into the Dan Brown novels. And it was like, after the first one, you're like, this doesn't work as a movie. And they're like, let's keep going anyway. It's like, yeah, they just kept making them. Like, just, (laughs) I know, just like they hated us. And they did. (laughs) Spro, you've actually got an opinion on his most recent film, which just popped up on Amazon Prime maybe two weeks ago, less than that, 13 Lives. I knew nothing about it other than I knew the story about the soccer team trapped in the mines. You guys know about that? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're all like riveted. It was like the baby that fell in the well back in the 80s. We're like, oh, my gosh. They made a movie about that. And I was like, oh, I like to watch these like dramatized stories sometimes. I like to just put them on in the background and then like gleam something from them, but not necessarily watch them. And then, of course, the first 10 minutes were subtitles. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) I got to pay attention to this or I'm not going to get anything. Mm. So then I started watching reading and then the movie evolved at a nice pace. And then all of a sudden Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen show up and I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on here? Like, what is this movie? And so the movie went on, it's two and a half hours, which we know I don't like long movies, but in the same instance, it unraveled nicely. And then by the end, the first name that comes up was directed by Ron Howard. And I was like, oh shit, I just got duped. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's how they get you. And I don't want to build it up too much because I don't want people to be like, a good Ron Howard film? I'm going out. And it's like, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe just knowing that it's Ron Howard is going to sully your taste a little bit. But I hope he does more films like this, like Apollo 13. It seems like he is good at real stories that have a big scope, which is not necessarily true of like other directors. He's a very competent director. And when he's at the helm of a, of a well-written script, he would be a, a safe choice for Hollywood, which is why he gets so many projects still, even after a bomb, like the whale movie, if you mentioned. <laughs> but, you know, like other directors may not be able to get away with that. But, you know, Ron Howard, everybody knows who he is, even people who don't, you know, really watch film uh, as much as we do. So regardless of our feelings of Ron Howard, we're taking his Oscar away today. So that takes us to the part in the show where Spro gives us Oscar Fun Fact, brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but on dog. This is actually the first Oscar fun fact recorded after the fact in the history of Oscar fun facts. So off the top, I know that there are over three hours of recording with Mr. Joe Lewis, myself, and Lee, and that is the longest recording time in the history of Saltota, which, as I wondered what the fun fact for today's episode should be, it instantly got me thinking about the length, the runtime of the Oscar telecast, and how that always seems to be an issue for the general public. The Oscars telecast averages about three and a half hours long. It usually starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and ends at 11.30 to midnight, which feels like a long Sunday night on the East Coast. It starts at 5 p.m. and ends between 8.30 or 9 on the West Coast, which allows all those in attendance and those not invited time to go out. But that's just the show. What we are forgetting is that there is also the red carpet live shows, which begin around 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we are looking at over six hours from beginning to finish. Now you understand how or why actors and actresses say they don't eat before a show to fit into their dresses. Some of them are beginning to get ready for our 8 p.m. show at noon, their time. So really, no matter where you are, the Oscars can feel like an all-day thing before it even gets started. And by the time the show starts, you have heard about the Oscars since the beginning of award season which begins around Halloween. And it's November and December that those films and artists, desperate for an Academy Award, 
Spielberg, <coughs> oh, excuse me, released their films in hopes of getting the gold. So psychologically, by the time the Oscars aired, I can understand if a majority of people are just fucking overhearing about it. But what about the show makes it so long? What makes it three and a half hours? Shorter than Zack Snyder's Justice League and actually shorter than the Super Bowl, which typically runs four hours. If you boil down a football game to how much action there actually is, like when the ball is snapped, it boils down to actually like 11 minutes during a four-hour football game or three and a half hours with the halftime show. Super Bowl is four hours. The rest of football is actually huddles, game planning, and commercials. So Oscars need to figure out how to make three and a half hours with only 11 minutes of actual action exciting, right? They should talk to the NFL. The LA Times boiled down the Oscars telecast to eight different categories. Host time, commercials, intros, promos, and outros, presenters, winners walking the stage, winners speeches, montages, including the in-memoriam, song performances and production numbers, and special honors academy business. Approximately, this is how much time is given for each thing from least amount of time to most of the Academy Awards in the last like 10 years. So least amount of time for a show is the special honors and academy business, at six minutes a show. Winners walking to the stage takes about 12 minutes. Montages and song performance are about eight, 15 minutes each, respectively. Winners speeches is at 30 minutes a show. I know sometimes it feels so much fucking longer. The host time, you know, whether it is Ellen DeGeneres or Chris Rock or whoever is the host, just one more minute more at 31 minutes a show. Commercials, promos, outros is 48 minutes a show. And presenters get the most amount of time at 55 minutes a show, almost an hour's worth. Now, I hate how everything in this country is meant to sell you something. And seeing how commercials are the second biggest part of this award show is no different. Super Bowl, same thing. We talk a lot about advertisements during the Super Bowl. Our TV programming, our TV shows, our serialized hospital and cop shows, our South Parks and Simpsons, even our Blues Clues are written with commercial breaks to sell you shit you don't need in mind. Imagine the integrity and the honesty of the Academy Awards, what they could give the public if they went, you know what? We want to shave off some runtime. And so we're only selling 30 minutes of ads and not 48 because we're fucking rich and we don't need that revenue anyway. That knocks off almost 20 minutes. We have said here on Saltota that we like the idea of combining interesting presenters with the hosts, which might up the presenter's time to 60 or 65 minutes, but cuts out the 31-minute host time, so you save 40 minutes right there. And suddenly, a show made fun of for its 3 hours and 30 minutes, sometimes 4 hours runtime, is effortlessly knocked back under the 3-hour mark, and nobody would really notice how. Nobody's going to give a shit that you cut out some commercials. The stars can collect their swag bags, their swung trunks, and go to a a party and we can all go to bed and get some rest for our 50k a year jobs we studied so hard for but that's just like my opinion of the facts man so let's get into the other nominees for best director of 2002 our first is mr robert altman who was nominated this year for gosford park this was robert altman's fifth and final best director nomination the film is a murder mystery set in england during the lull between world war one and world war ii takes place entirely in and around a country estate, which I assume is where the title comes from, though not once does anyone even utter the words Gosford Park. And there's a multitude of bougie guests that have gathered to eat, talk shit, and shoot guns. However, the film is as much about the servants, if not more, than it's about these elite. Screenwriter Julian Fellows intended to follow the characters from Gosford Park with a television series, but in the end chose to create completely new ones for his show, Downton Abbey. 
I got to admit, my experiences watching Altman's films are varied. I've liked some very much, a few I could not stand, and some I've never had the interest to see. But of the ones I've seen, Gosford Park is my favorite. And what I'm about to say, I'm also going to say about a couple other films from this year, so please pardon the laziness of my criticism. I don't know how a director does this. Or as Robert Downey Jr. says to Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac, how does one do that? The absolute mastery, the focus, the vision that it requires to put together a film this rich with so many storylines and characters and make it feel so effortless and perfect it requires such deftness and precision and just decades of experience. I was surprised how much I loved this movie the second time around because the first time around I was bored stupid. Back when I saw everything which was nominated for the top Oscars, I rented this one. In fact, a bunch of us gathered to watch it in college. When it was over, no one sitting in the apartment had anything positive to say about it, myself included. But man, what a difference 20 years makes. Oh yeah. We watched this film and actually in one of my film classes when we were studying sound dialogue because there's just so much dialogue that overlaps and it makes you know everything feel so much more natural. And I remember that was a top discussion. Where is Mrs. Croft? Always eats with her own staff. Does she take her pudding to Mrs. Wilson's room? Our cook does that. Fat chance they beat each other. Can I ask a question? Certainly, Mr. Wiseman. Uh, how can we help you? I just wondered, uh, how many people here had parents in service? And was that why they chose to go into it? What an interesting question, and one uh, to which I'm afraid I cannot provide the answer. All of you whose parents were in service, raise your hand. Oh, my father. Not you, Dorothy. My father was a farmer, Mr. Jennings, a tenant of Lord Carton's. Mr. Meredith? Patrians, both of them. And if you ask me, they were better off. Oh. What about you, Mr. Stockbridge? What's the matter? Don't you know? Yeah, I know what they did. But it didn't have any effect on me on my choice of work. And why is that? Because I grew up in an orphanage. You stole my thunder talking about Downton Abbey because a lot of the strength of this piece, and it's a great ensemble piece like a lot of uh, Robin Altman movies are, is just kind of the upstairs-downstairs theme with the lives of the serpents intertwined with the bourgeois, you know, the upper-class aristocrats pre-World War II England. And Fellows went on to have enormous success with Downton Abbey, like seven seasons, two movies, with generally the same themes, the same ideas. I might need to watch that show because I've never seen an episode of it. Sam really warmed me up to it. It's, it's a very like cozy, non-gritty version of Gosford Park and much cozier in the sense, you know, where Gosford's very gritty, very cynical look and probably rightly so at the way, you know, that they live the way. And it's not even really, it's an interesting film because it was marketed as a murder mystery and also as a comedy, but it's not really interested in either one of those things. It's not interested in whether you find, you know, the dry British humor funny or not, or if you're interested in the murder mystery, it's really just primarily interested in the dynamic between the servants and the upper class family and how they kind of coexist I do thoroughly enjoy this film. I actually have no problem with Altman not getting the Best Director for this. He should have gotten it for Shortcuts, which he made in the early 90s. He was also nominated for Best Director for that. I think that's his finest film. It was certainly worthy of a Best Director now because I agree, like the scenes, the layers of dialogue and multiple storylines working together, it's a very difficult thing to choreograph. And Altman was great at doing that with an ensemble cast. It's a shame that he never won a Best Director, and I think this was going to be his last chance at getting it, and then it was kind of a, a bummer. But like so many other strong contenders to go along with it, it's, it's just bad timing. If the audience is sitting there being like, well, I didn't really even like get Gosford Park, 
I'm the voice of you. And maybe it's just because I did not watch it twice. I watched it once. So I got that first reaction of bored to death. I have nothing good to say. And really, when it comes to Altman's work, I don't like his body of work. Mm -hmm. I can tell you I haven't seen all Altman films, but that's just because the Altman films that I have seen, like I just want to drill a hole in my temple and empty (laughs) out my brains. The slow monotony is what I think of with Altman. And even with this, granted, you guys were talking about Downton Abbey. I didn't get into that either. You know, like this one at least has the grittiness that might intrigue me. When it comes to like the lies and secrets and gossip and pratter of the staff of a gigantic mansion, Mm -hmm. there's so many characters and stories and backstories and things going on. Like I get lost in the shuffle. Like I do at parties, I find myself sitting in the corner and waiting to leave. (laughs) Maybe that's just (laughs) every party. I'm like, too much going on. The weird thing is also I have the anxiety of like, if I'm not one of the first to show up or the last to leave, I think party is talking about me. When well, it's funny because we, like, we do talk about you when you show up at parties. Your paranoia is justified. Like a weirdo in the corner. Um, <laughs> we talked in season two, episode one with Jeremy about style being the number one thing looked at for the best directing Oscar. We also talked about it a little bit in season one with Emily when we awarded Danny Boyle for 28 Days Later, the ability to stretch a bad budget to get the most out of a penny should be like one of the things looked at for best directing. So when we look at all these wonderful directors with wonderful style this year. Ron Howard lacking in style is fully competent. It's fine that he got nomination. Should not have gotten awarded because there's mm-hmm. really no style to a beautiful mind. And I'd say Robert Altman's style is boring. Well, that's, you know what? That's Altman, he called me and he said the same thing about you and I was just really taken <laughs> No, it, it's something, it's a it's a very fair criticism because it's something he's been accused of for a long time. Like a lot of non-cinema aficionados don't, like no one rushes to see a Robert Altman film. It's not like, oh my God, what's the next Robert Altman movie come out? Like the next Chris Nolan movie. But his slow, deliberate style is something a lot of movie critics really, really love. And you either love it or you hate it. A lot of his, his repertoire, MASH, Nashville, Shortcuts, The Player, and a lot of very long, very deliberately paced ensemble pieces that if you're not on board, I think from the very beginning, Getting, you kind of just you have to go in there with a certain expectation. It's not going to be just this completely linear story. There's going to be like smaller micro stories that unfold before you, and it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, I like it. Three years to write that joke, but yeah, I completely get what you're saying for a lot of people, and that was like another reason why it didn't get the best director. It was you know the American audience is like you know what the bloody hell is this film about? You know class differences in England and, and pre World War II aristocracy. But I don't think that we had really seen a film kind of. T- tackle that subject matter to that extent. Minus Remains of the Day with Anthony Hopkins. I can't think of a lot of films that kind of tackle that upstairs, downstairs theme. My wife would, but I'm, you know. To see a bunch of like old, rich, white Oscar voters being like, oh, so this is what my house staff thinks about. (laughs) They're probably like, I need more servants. I can't believe how many they have. Like, yeah. (laughs) So Joe, you brought up, this was very likely his last shot at a Best Director Oscar. And he never won one. He went to his grave never having won an Oscar for Best Director. He did get an honorary Oscar, which was in recognition of a career that has repeatedly reinvented the art form and inspired filmmakers and audiences alike. And in his speech at the Oscars this year, he reveals that he had recently had a heart transplant and kept it quiet. And he said, One one more thing. I'm here, I think, under kind of false pretenses. And I, I, I think I have to gets become straight with you uh 10 years ago 11 years ago uh i had a heart transplant a total heart transplant 
I got the heart of, I think, a young woman who was about in her late 30s. And so by that kind of calculation, you may be giving me this award too early because <laughs> I think I've got about 40 years left on it. And I intend to use it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Eight months later, he passed from leukemia. Oh, wow. Let's move on to a more palatable film for our audience, probably one that they've seen. Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship has the distinction of being the last time I felt completely transported by a piece of cinema. It came out approximately three months after September 11th, 2001. And frankly, I think I needed the distraction that Tolkien's world provided. To wit, I saw this one five times in the theater, which is my record, by the way. Mine is seven times for James Cameron's true life. Joe, what do you got? Blade Runner 2049 or Dune. That's my guesses. <laughs> I saw Titanic eight times. Oh, no, you didn't. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was out for like two years. So it was like a, like a go-to date movie. So it was like, what do you want to see? Well, let's go see Titanic because it's still out two years later. This is the same girl or that was just your first date and you're like- You know, did you do the Titanic? No, it was, uh, it was <laughs> different dates, but it was like, yeah, oh. seriously, it's like seven or eight times. No, the yeah. ship is not the only thing that can go down tonight. <laughs> Yikes. That is hot. I saw things like 2049 and Dune and, and Gladiator a ton, but I did not see them like seven or eight times. But I know I saw Titanic far too many times than I should have. Anyway, let's move on. I don't want to talk about Titanic anymore. So just getting these movies made was a journey unto itself. Lord of the Rings was originally a Miramax production, which is why you might have seen the Fat Boy Brothers listed in the credits. But after a year or so of pre-production, they told Jackson he needed to trim the scripts from two movies down to one. Jackson Jackson then asked if he could shop it around to see if there'd be another studio interested. The Weinsteins agreed, but they also asked that he get a $20 million check from whatever studio signed on in order to recoup their losses. Well, thank God for Bob Shea at New Line Cinema, who not only agreed to the terms, but insisted Lord of the Rings be three films, not two. So the project that was nearly dead not only had new life, but it had wings to boot. Everybody who worked on this film credits Jackson's vision and temperament with making the production fun, despite being a laborious undertaking. Principal photography was 13 months, and that doesn't count the month or so that the actors had to be there prior to the beginning of shooting. And Jackson's infectious passion for bringing Tolkien to the screen inspired everybody on set to give their absolute best, and those who couldn't catch the vibe did not last. I used to think Return of the King was the best of the three. I always was a big fan of the resolution of stories, but I've, I've since reevaluated. Fellowship was really where Jackson and New Line Cinema staked a claim on the next two years of moviegoers. All we wanted was more Frodo and Sam, Gandalf, and the beauty of Middle-earth. Did you listen to the uh, Hollywood Reporter Awards Chatter podcast in the interview with Peter Jackson? No, I did not. Well, I recommend all of our audience to check out that episode. It's like an hour interview, and he's talking mainly about his new Beatles documentary, but they talk a lot about the behind the scenes of this and what you just went over. The other thing that's crazy is how sometimes they had seven film crews going on at one time in different locations and wow. it just seems like he was a general more than he was a film director and they filmed I think 220 days or something straight just because they were going like back to back to back I never thought Return of the King was the best of the three but probably because the first time I saw it in the theater I really needed to pee and kept getting <laughs> duped by the multiple endings and being like okay it's over now and now I could get out and then it was like ah! 
what? And then we come back on the stream. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> that left a bad taste. But I always like the ends of Two Towers the most. And while I think book two is my favorite, I don't like like the break point between, and I'm going to just call it like the act two to act three break. The break between movie two and movie three, it felt a little weird to me. I wanted Two Towers to be a little bit longer, which I think they could have done. Kind of how the books were, right? Because the books ended after the spider attack. Yes, you're right. So in the most groundbreaking opinion of all time, the books were better, but obviously the movies are easier to ingest. But Fellowship is what I keep coming back to. And I understand the Academy Awards looking to see if he could pull it off. They do it often where they're like, well, if this is going to be a three-parter, let's see if he does all three parts before we get egg on our face. Mm -hmm. But this one, you're right. It transports you to the Shire. It makes me even angrier that we never got the Battle of the Shire. But the other amazing thing about this whole process is the fact that he did fuck all before this huge undertaking. Like people would be like, what about heavenly creatures? Ah, okay, whatever. Get bent. His splatter film was better, but I'm blanking on the name of it now. Brain Dead. Brain Dead, yeah. Dead Alive, or it's got a couple different names. I really always liked The Frighteners. I think over the course of about a year and a half, two years, me and my dad and my brother rented and watched that movie something like 30 times. And every time I started dating a new girl, I would rent that movie and make them watch it in my parents' basement. Nice. That's how you got them. The Frighteners gets them every time. (laughs) See, there you go. You didn't have to do the Titanic. Oh, no. I agree with Spro. I like the second one. I like the Two Towers the most. I think the Helm's Deep battle sequence is by far the most exciting and nerve-wracking of all the battles, in my opinion. The stakes feel higher to me simply because we're getting a closer look at the civilians, you know, the, the village people they're trying to protect. I feel like we see less of that in the third one, where it's the giant battle where everything comes down to the fate of the world. So I like the second one. But I mean, the trilogy as a whole, this is clearly Jackson's and probably will always be his masterpiece. I wasn't the biggest fan of Jackson's previous work, and I'm also not the biggest fan of his post-Lord of the Rings work, especially the Hobbit trilogy. I was one of the people to like not really want to go see Lord of the Rings when it came out. You know, I didn't jump on the bandwagon. I was kind of like, eh. You were the Harry Potter verse. You're like, duh, wizards over orcs. <laughs> I wasn't in any of that. No, I was kind of like, oh, whatever. I read that when I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. But then I saw the first one on DVD. I'm like, wow, I really wish I would have watched that in the theater. From then on, I was, I was hooked. I caught the second two in the cinema. But yeah, just the scope of it and the the idea of filming the three of them back to back to back was just, I think, the only way to do it without having it turn out like something like David Lynch's Dune, where they took a 600-page novel and condensed it into two hours and 15 minutes, and people are like, what the hell is that? So it gives the story the time it needs to unfold. No Tom Bombledore. It's a bummer. It's <laughs> really, it's, it's a huge bummer. Bombadil. Bombledore. Bombadil. Belloc. I'm Dumbledore. <laughs> Belloc. Yeah, that dude. Well, they call him Belosh. They call him Belosh. But yeah, no, no, none of that guy. There's so many other movie directors who had tried to make it and failed. Like John Borman really was dying to make a Lord of the Rings film. You know, they, they just didn't have the effects for it. He went on to make Excalibur instead. Decades later, they had the kind of special effects that you would need to tell the story and give it justice. And so Jackson just did such a great job of it. You know, I think a lot of directors had this as a dream project, but only until that time point did they have the special effects to really make it a, a real deal. After this movie came out, it was floating around on the internet that the Beatles had wanted to make this film at one point with the four of them playing the four hobbits. I have heard something to that extent. I didn't know. I, I thought that was just kind of like a running joke or was that actually was that actually a thing? I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I heard it. I heard it. <clears throat> well, I we'll talk it. to the surviving member of the Beatles later today and see what they have to say about that. There's two of them. There's two of them. <laughs> two left. Yeah. Oh, you don't, count, you don't count Ringo. Sorry. One thing that like, because you talked about the effects being available, but I think the one thing that really helped this movie have stayed 
staying power is the fact that he also played with practical effects. And so like, you know, like these orcs are walking around. It's not just CGI in the background that's going to be outdated at some point. Like the Hobbit. Like the Hobbit that felt, (laughs) that felt, no, no, no. This is actually, that felt outdated the moment the movie was released. You're watching on the screen like this, this is aged terribly. They just made it like five months ago. I love the costumes. Yeah, I agree. The orcs look phenomenal when they're played by live action actors, but CGI, I'm just like, you lost me. His approach to the film, he gathered all of the departments to him before they set out. And he told them all, I don't want you to think that you're adapting a book. I want you to think that we are telling a historical tale. I want you to imagine that all of this actually happened. The other thing is just the beauty and splendor of New Zealand that acts as the backdrop. Where else could you have filmed that with such varying geographical locations and just from Peter Jackson, who knows his way around New Zealand and found absolutely the most perfect spots to film this these movies. Bob Shea and New Line really gambled and won on this one. I mean, New Line was kind of a joke for most of the 80s. Their bread and butter was the Nightmare on Elm Street. That was the one where they really hit yeah. the home run. And then like that's what propelled them into, into the big leagues, so to speak, with the, those B-horror movies. Taking chances on like kind of like the, the outlying films was their key mark. And this seemed to be in the same line of that. I think the first production company that I like followed, you know, like I was like, oh, it's a New Line film because you know, you saw it before things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ninja Turtles Blair yeah. Witch. So then like was like New Line and then it was Focus Features. I was like, oh, it's a Focus Feature? Like, I'm going to go see that. And now it's A24 that I'm like, okay, this is going to be something new and interesting. But like, it is crazy to think like how much of a gamble it was because New Line was struggling at the time too. And they're like, fuck it. It was a lot of cheese they put on the movie for sure. What was the total cost of the trilogy to make even back in the early 2000s? Would, I think would it was like, in the neighborhood of $250 million. Which would have been- like made what, like, almost three billion. So they bet right, and then they merged with Warner Brothers, and then, and then the they made the Hobbits. God, they just it ruined so, that. Yeah, it, it was. I was so. I remember how excited I was when the first one came out. I'm like, oh my god, I can't wait to like revisit that universe. And, and I watched it. Like, eh. I think the best film review I read about the Hobbit was like, you should never be able to finish the book before you finish the movie. Yeah, and three like, movies was with three movies. Um, yeah, like how does that work? I, I get he was trying to you know expand the universe. They could have done the mm-hmm. Hobbit in one movie too, right? But I would have been happy with two. Yeah, just like a part one, part two, and just leave it at that. Totally. They did totally. Not. Are you excited for uh, the Amazon? No, not at all. Really? I it, yeah, I think it looks like it's going to be really stupid. Well... <laughs> That sounds promising. I'm going to see if Amazon delivers. I mean, it's like like half a billion dollars. Speaking of putting all your chips no. in one thing, I mean, it's- He that's, goes to space. They're not putting all their- Yeah, that's Amazon is space. not putting all their- I'm going to space. I'm leaving you guys for the crappy Lord of the Rings show. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Let's move forward. <laughs> I don't think Spro would agree, but so far, both of the other movies that we've talked about, Fellowship and Gosford Park, I'd be completely happy with giving the Best Director Oscar to either of them. But we're going to move on now to the next film on the list, which is Black Hawk Down, directed by Ridley Scott. So here's me recycling my uninspired realization. I don't know how the fuck a director puts together a film like this. Obviously, preparation, experience, talent, passion, blah, 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 blah. But what sets Black Hawk Down apart from Lord of the Rings and apart from Gosford Park is that it's based on actual events. Undeniably, one of the best war films ever made, even though kind of don't like saying that. It seems weird and almost disrespectful to enjoy war films sometimes to me. Does it to you? No. No. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. All right. <laughs> this is actually my 
favorite war film. And going off of something that you just said, like when you don't understand how a director puts it together. So one of the things that directors do, right, is they get the script and then they storyboard the script, which means they have, it's like a comic book of the movie, but it's pretty much showing what their shots and what their vision looks like. So they could give it to the director of photography and then the director of photography or cinematographer can set up the shots and try and give the director the visualization that they want based off the storyboards and based off of the script. I don't know how you storyboard such pieces as that. Like, I feel like it's just the most painstaking process of like sitting down and being like, here's this. One, I have no artistic ability whatsoever. So I couldn't even like, it would be like stick figures with, you know, banana guns trying to like shoot each other. With Black Hawk Down, it's like when people talk about Saving Private Ryan. Great opening. The rest is pretty Hollywood. Where Black Hawk Down is like Saving Private Ryan's opening. It's just a battlefield. Hell. Minimal characterization. Minimal America the Hero bullshit. This is what I think a war movie should be. It's just one mission that gets fucked up. Everybody trying to survive. This is, I think, one of the chef's kiss of war movies. And I can't say enough nice things about it. This is 26, roger that. Take the I think this is easily a top five, top ten war film for me. It's, in my opinion, Ridley Scott's last great film. You know, he was on a roll after he made Gladiator. He did Gladiator, then Hannibal was like, eh, whatever. It was a big commercial hit. And then he made this, which was just such a gritty war film that doesn't really have in-depth characterations. It remains apolitical. It really just focuses on the chaos and recreating the madness of that Mogadishu, that market, that city in Somalia, and just how they did it. It's just like you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. It's just one long, horrific battle scene that's gone terribly wrong. It doesn't really waste too much time jumping into the action, and it's not interested in telling any smaller story. There's no rah, rah, yeah, war. It's a hell they're trying desperately to escape, and you feel it from beginning to end. It's just a very well done, beautifully shot, old school Hans Zimmer score. Yeah, it feels like what a good Ridley Scott movie used to feel like. It's the most Tony Scott, Ridley Scott movie that is out there. Like, it feels like a blend between the two brothers' styles. That's a really good point, because Tony did a lot of that. This quick zoom in, like the shaky mm-hmm. handheld stuff, like a lot of the lighting. Yeah, I'd say that's a, that's a very accurate take. Just, I think, tighter. I feel like Tony maybe puts a little more like slow motion to be like, look at this dramatic scene, whereas Scott just kind of lets the camera roll and lets the chaos play yeah. out. Yeah, well, Tony does like the stylized, like overexposure film a lot. and whatnot. 
wild cast from this movie too. Oh yeah. I, I feel like just like with Gosford Park, it's a beautiful ensemble piece. So many are like, oh my God, that's right. Josh Hartnett was an actor in movies. And you're like, oh, there's Orlando Bloom. And then they drop him out of the helicopter. You're like, well, now I don't know who's going to die, you know, because <laughs> he was off so quickly. And so that immediately intrigues you into the storyline of everybody else because nobody is safe in this movie. I was all in because of Eric Bana's character who reminded me of the character of Spears from Band of Brothers, which came out right around the exact same time as this movie. At the end of the movie, when they are grabbing food, who is it that he's talking to? It's Josh Hartnett. It's Josh he's Hartnett. Talking, he's talking mm-hmm. to Josh Hartnett. And Eric Bana says that piece about how, like, you know, that's what people back home will never understand. When I go home, people ask me, hey, who? Why do you do it, man? Why? Some kind of war junkie? I won't say a goddamn word. Why? They won't understand. They won't understand why we do it. They won't understand it's about the men next to you. And that's it. That's all it is. And then saddles up again. And Josh Hartness like makes a move to come with him. He think he even says like, you want me to? And he goes, no, nope, I'm better on my own. And it's just like, thank fucking God. I don't have to go back in there. Yeah. No. Well, I was, yeah, well, that, <laughs> that's not what I was going to say. That works. No, I was going to say, thank fucking God that there are, there are people like that looking out for each other in the world. Just makes me, just makes me happy. And I, I have nothing but nice things to say about Josh Hartnett because when an actor retires or like gets the fuck away from Hollywood, I go, that's a normal person right there. Right. And Josh Hartnett did retire and he like bought a ranch in Montana. He had an interview once where his friends were like, fuck are you doing? Like you have everything. And he's like, no, I don't want that. I want a nice, quiet life. So I go, Josh Hartnett, probably a real dude. Plus, then he gets to do, you know, when somebody comes to him with a script somewhere along the line that actually inspires him to get back in the game, he gets to have a comeback story, which hopefully will happen. I don't know if one ever truly comes back from Hollywood Homicide, but... I was going to bring that movie up (laughs) because, and forgive me, I actually kind of like that movie. Do you really? (laughs) Yes! That's a podcast heard of it. Time. Him and Harrison Ford. Yeah. It's not it's not good, but I enjoy it's not. it. So we're three movies deep, and I believe all three of these are better than Beautiful Mind and completely worthy of the best <laughs> director Oscar. But let's You're move- still weirding me out with the wording. We're talking about directing. I wouldn't say the movies are better than a beautiful oh my mind. God. Directing. You know what I mean. Keep your semantics off my body. <laughs> Alright. That brings us to the fifth and final nominee, David Lynch. Now, David Lynch came out with a film in 2001 called Mulholland Drive. I almost said this at the outset, but I thought I'd wait till we got to this point. It's because of you, Joe, that I stopped following actors so much and started following directors. You and I only lived together one year, but in that short time, you changed my entire approach to cinema. Until I met you, I was the most knowledgeable film dork I knew. And there were so many times you and I would argue about Minutia, who wrote the score to Superman, or to bring up the Frighteners again, who directed it. I was always convinced I was right until you insisted we go down to the computer lab and look it up on IMDb. And you were always right. And I was always wrong. And you used to do a victory lap around the computer lab, both your arms up in the air. And you earned my respect. And once you did, I kind of became pliable in your hands. You started persuading me to watch selections from your VHS library. But no campaign was more passionate than your David Lynch pitch. 
I don't remember if I resisted much. I do remember sitting in the dark in our tiny ass dorm watching Lost Highway, feeling very unnerved and thinking this film feels like a psych thesis. It feels like a confession, like it was made by a self-aware madman as a form of treatment. So it stuck with me, clearly. And safe to say Lynch is probably your favorite director of all time. So we might as well admit here and now that you came here today because you wanted to see Lynch be given his due. Just know that I'm not entirely sold yet on giving the Oscar over to him. But if you'll permit me, I'd like to get a little context from you first. How did Lynch get his hooks in you? For sure. First of all, thanks for the kind words. Oh, I love you. have buddy. no friends in high school. You have lots of time to watch movies. So <laughs> <laughs> that that blows my mind that you had no friends in high school because you were always the most charismatic and funny person in the room. I'm just half joking. I just oh. watched like a ton of films. Oh. But yeah, so anyway, so back in grade school, I had an epic me and I was in the hospital for like two weeks and they only had like two movies they had The Little Mermaid and they had David Lynch's Dune I don't know how they got like down to those two but like so I'm like alright well I'll just watch Dune and I loved the book I loved it in seventh grade it was like my all time favorite it still is so I watched the film and the first time I saw it I actually hated it I couldn't stand it. It was like the ultimate condensed Cliff Notes version of the film. And we were talking earlier about Lord of the Rings. If you had condensed all that into one film and cut it down to two and a half hours, it wouldn't make any sense. So I really got into it after like the seventh or eighth viewing when you're stuck in a hospital room, you've got absolutely nothing else to do. And then after that, I'm like, okay, well, what else has this dude done? And then I found Twin Peaks, which also recast a lot of the same Dune stars. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll give this a shot. And I was just instantly hooked in that universe. You had like all this weird stuff going on in the background. You had these like quirky, strange townspeople there. You had this incredibly eccentric FBI guy, Dale Cooper. I had never seen anything like it. And from then on, I was just hooked and being like, I'll watch anything this guy puts out there. Some of his more popular works aren't actually my favorite, like Blue Velvet and Eraserhead. We've discussed Eraserhead in the past. Like That's one I can watch maybe every 10 years, and that's about as much as I can stomach. Yeah. Some of it's the body horror. Some of it's just, it's not a comfortable film to watch, and that's the point. And same with Blue Velvet. It's a great film, but it's just the subject doesn't lend itself, at least in my book, to multiple reviewings, at least not particularly enjoyable ones. But post Twin Peaks, you know, after Wild at Heart, his films started to get a lot more interested in kind of like the realms of dreams and kind of stream of consciousness filmmaking, like Fire Walk With Me, which was a huge critical and financial flop is now considered to be one of his better films, but it was Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and then Inland Empire would be kind of his dream trilogy, where they're all kind of thematically linked, whereas Mulholland Drive would be, I use the word commercially loosely, but probably his most commercial of the three, his most accessible to mass audiences, at least until you know the, the story kind of unfolds at the end. I could probably go on for several hours, if not days, talking about Lynch, but I think Drive came out. I remember going to see it in the theater, the Cedar Lee, probably like two or three times. It was originally a TV pilot, and it was pitched to ABC. It was about eight or nine million to make, which is really expensive for a TV pilot. But then it was David Lynch, so a lot of networks were like, oh, hey, we want the next Twin Peaks. They saw the pilot. They thought it was too violent. They thought two lead stars, Naomi Watts and uh, what's her name, were too old, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, they canned it. They're like, okay, well, we don't want to make it so. Can you imagine just six years later with Breaking Bad coming out and changing the face of television completely? Cuss words and like ultra violence. Right how ahead of their time ABC could have been and how much more Mulholland Drive we could have gotten. Sure. Well, Lynch had already put his stamp on network television with Twin Peaks. He had already changed the way that people looked at like the possibilities, the things you could do with darker storytelling and just like weirder shit you could get away with. But with Mulholland Drive, I think they were just like, yeah, it's too violent. I think your, your stars are too old, blah, blah, blah. And then I think it was Mary Sweeney. I think it was Lynch's girlfriend or wife at the time. I, 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 I'll have to ask him later. She was like, you should do something with that pilot. You should make a film out of it. So he 
went back and I guess ABC had destroyed all the sets and costumes, which they don't typically do. And he's like, okay, well, you know what? We're going to start everything from scratch. I'm going to do like a stream of consciousness, like writing the scenes before, not like rewriting the script, but just kind of like coming up with these scenes right before they'd film them to finish the narrative of the story, which is like, he took that same approach and that's how he filmed Inland Empire, the third and probably least accessible of the three, where he'd just show up and like, hey, I'm going to write a scene today and I'm going to tell you what I want to do. And this is the scene we're going to film. That's kind of how he finished Mulholland Drive. And that's what we see is like those additional scenes, especially at the end where shit really gets weird. That's him kind of ad-libbing on the fly and somehow finishing like an open-ended story that was meant to go on at least one or two seasons. So that's why I've always been impressed. I think Spro mentioned earlier about when filmmakers do a lot with very little money for, you know, eight or nine million dollars for a film budget. It's an extremely low budget, especially compared to Fellowship, Black Hawk Down, etc. And it's by far the most unique of the group and Lynch's third nomination, but again, has not won yet. He hasn't released a commercial film since then. Well, we can't deny that he's due for probably an honorary Oscar. If Robert Altman's going to get one for redefining the scope of cinema, like David Lynch is in the running for the style and the way that he puts together movies, it's incomparable. I don't think there's somebody doing something as abstract, as commercially successful as David Lynch. The only other person that I could see is Darren Aronofsky, who is on a very short rope with Mother. Like once Mother came out, they're like, this guy's not it. They came down really hard on him. And I don't think they necessarily do that with David Lynch. I really liked Mother. I did too. I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. And I regret, that's the only Aronofsky film I did not, that in Requiem, I did not see in the theater and I regret it. And so bringing it back to Mulholland Drive, what is it about Mulholland Drive that you cling to in this year? I like the mystery of it. I like his running theme of innocence kind of corrupted, not just by Hollywood, but kind of like the neighborhood corruption that we saw in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Lynch is very big on The Wizard of Oz. That's like one of his biggest influences. And so you see a lot of that Oz kind of dream world in Lost Highway and Drive and then in Inland Empire. And it's just such an interesting kind of journey because you never know where the story is going to take you. You know it's going to end up someplace really fucked up. But I think for me, it's unraveling the mystery of it. It's kind of getting that dream logic. You have this straightforward narrative, like you're following along with it and that's the pilot. But then once Lynch kind of tacks on the additional material to make it a film, that's when it goes full-blown Lynchian and you're just kind of lost in this world trying to figure out what exactly is reality and what's fiction for this character, for Betty's character. And I like that he kind of uh, lived at the last minute and created what could have been like a canned and shelved pilot and just turned into this, like one of his most successful films in his repertoire. And I really like that. I love the cast. It was a star-making role for Watts, who was like thinking of dropping out of acting because she had so many failed auditions. And then she got the role for, for Mulholland Drive and just took off from there. But it, it feels like such a classic Lynch movie. You've got the Angelo Badalamenti score. You see a lot of his familiar faces in there. It feels very complete more than Lost Highway and obviously more than Inland Empire, which is far more experimental and will test the patience of any non-Lynch fan. I think it takes a lot of chances cinematically, not just between Watts' on-screen romance with her co-star, but also with the structure and, and Lynch just doesn't care whether or not the audience knows what's going on. He's just going to tell the story his way. And I like that. It's ballsy. I think plenty of people, probably most people, see his films and think that was a bunch of fucking nonsense. To this day, I can't find anything to latch onto about Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and even 
to some degree, Eraserhead, although I find Eraserhead far more interesting. Do you think that those are valid audience responses? Do you think that the average cinema goer is just too simple-minded to appreciate Lynch's approach? I don't want you to insult everyone. <laughs> you idiots. Philistines. You just don't get it. You don't get his culture. No. I mean, it's his films have been polarizing since Eraserhead. Since his short movies, they've always had some kind of disturbing element of like sexual violence, evil, weird, demented characters, with the exception, of course, of like the straight story to a lesser extent, The Elephant Man, which are far more straightforward and linear. He's never been afraid to kind of poke a sleeping dog when it comes to themes of sex and violence and nonlinear structures. I like Lynch because he doesn't treat his audience like idiots. You know, if some people walk away, I'm like, I don't know, whatever. It doesn't make any sense. Like, he's like, I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's it's art. It's open to interpretation. I know what it means for me, but that's why he never does like director's commentary. Like, I don't want to kill the dream. Which is simultaneously laudable and irritating because <laughs> it can be. You started my Lynchian Odyssey with Lost Highway, which I really enjoyed it a lot on my first viewing, despite barely understanding what the fuck I just watched. And with most of these screenings in our dorm room, I needed you to explain it. I would turn to you virtually after the fade to black and be like, okay, what the fuck just happened? And you were more than happy to explain it to me. So for people who have never, but are willing to give Lynch a chance, where would you suggest that they begin? And then what survival tips would you offer if they're, temp- <laughs> if they're tempted partway through to give up on a racer head and watch The Office for the 700th time? Sure. Well, both are, both are perfect. You can watch those back to back. A little racer head followed by The Office. I can't think of a better companion piece. I mean, if you want to start with the linear film, The Elephant Man is a beautiful film. It's fairly straightforward, that and a straight story, which I would recommend a little less because probably a population of viewers who don't find that completely enthralling. I mean, I love it, but it's a Disney David Lynch movie. Blue Velvet, also very straightforward. However, it also explores an extremely unpleasant and controversial subject material regarding sex and violence and obsession, a lot of themes that you'd see later in Lynch's work. It's a great question. I think a lot of people with David Lynch, honestly, they start with Twin Peaks, the original show. I think that's the one thing that really drew in a large audience. That was where I ended, interestingly. <laughs> okay, so you ended where, where most people would typically be. So you started with the weirdest stuff, like Eraserhead and Lost Highway. Well, that's, you just what, you, right that's what you gave me, buddy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the way it should be. You should like, okay, this is what this guy does. This is what the kind just of- rip, rip the band-aid off. Yeah, exactly. And then like, you know, once you get into Twin Peaks, you're like, okay, I kind of know what to expect, but this is a little more, I guess, accessible, a little more linear at times until you get to, you know, the end of Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, and of course, The Return, which is just absolute batshit crazy, which I love. Bro, have you ever seen Twin Peaks? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the original, like I didn't, I actually never finished the movie. Yeah. It's a tough but. watch. Yeah. Twin Peaks, I was able to rope my wife into. She knew Kyle McLaughlin. It's got a very nice air to it while also being a little bit mystical and mysterious. And she was hooked. Every time we got home from work, we would brew a pot of coffee. We started going across the street to the grocery store and getting donuts. Oh, it's so awesome. You know, we would watch one episode every night and we would have sure. decaf because it was at nighttime and we needed to not be awake all night, but then have a donut and watch it. I think I was actually messaging you and you were like, well, you got to show her Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. So I rented it from the library and that was where she was like, uh, got to draw the line. And here. I was like, yeah, okay, this is all right. This is weird. I'm like, but it came back. There's a third season. So then I rented, I was able to get all of all of season three from the library. And then she really checked out and I watched every second of it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen everything that he's done except Inland Empire. And I think that third season of Twin Peaks, it's despite how bloated and indulgent it a lot is. Of too much Doug. Doug oh my Robin God. It's, place. it's yeah. so bloated and indulgent. What is it like 22 hour long episodes? Something like that. It's like between 18 to 22. It is an undertaking, but it is 
some of the most unnerving shit yeah, I again, have ever seen in my life. And you're watching this, like, I like, I can't believe this is on TV, even cable television. Like, like I can't believe I'm watching. When and it's out, not like, not because it's shocking or violent, but because no. you're just, you're just like, who gave this guy <laughs> all this money and said, here you go, and have said, fun. We're not going to come visit the set. You figure it out. Well, and then I he that, comes to oh, them with this electrical box that was like puking out demons. Yes. I think that's why he he sticks with television, especially now he's making something for Netflix. That's the word out there in the street is that they're giving him a lot of money and a lot of freedom and like as many episodes as he wants to tell his story. I think maybe he found film to be a, a little bit too confining for the stories he wanted to tell. Instead of making a three-hour film like Inland Empire, where you can make 20 episodes of, of the show and here's this blank check and just like, hey, go crazy. And he's like, oh, I will. And he did. He has a deal with Netflix rumored. Yeah, it's a project called, what is it, Undiscovered Night or something like that? Rumored to be in the making for like years now. Unrecorded Unrecorded Night. night. Unrecorded Night, thank you. Yeah, so it may be coming out, it may not, but I think like Altman, this might be the last best director nod that Lynch gets because he does so many little side projects. Like film isn't just his one mode of art. You know, he paints, he does photography, he does commercials, he does music, he does like everything. He has like a TikTok or he he live streams from some platform and he's like, hello. Yeah, he gets the it's weather a report every day. day. It's seventy nine <laughs> degrees outside. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart from Mars. Yeah, but anyway, David Lynch also has his own graduate school of cinematic arts. You can go and learn screenwriting, and then also transcendental meditation, which he's huge in. He loves his TCM. So he normally. Does. We give a synopsis of the film, but I am loath to do that in your presence, A, and B, I don't know how to describe it, quite frankly, without describing all of it. How would you give a a brief description to somebody who was like, okay, what's Mulholland Drive about? Mystery slash love story that may or may not be in the entirety of of someone's head or subconscious. I mean, you can't approach it as a linear, you can't like tell someone like, well, this is the general plot because it isn't really the general plot. Like once you finish the movie and you kind of more or less figure out what he's trying to say, it's basically you have this aspiring actress who's trying to help this woman with amnesia find out who she is with all of this this darker world kind of encroaching upon the two of them and just like a classic Lynch theme nothing is ever as it seems everything you watch you know should not be taken at face I think that's perfect nothing is yeah I think that says it all right there the first time I ever watched this was with you and again it was in a dorm room but it was not our freshman year we weren't living together anymore but a bunch of us gathered together in a mutual friend's dorm room we watched this and again turned to you and I was like, God, what the fuck did I just watch? And you explained it to me and it it didn't land for me the first time, but I really enjoyed it this second time. So much so that I ended up watching it all over the absolute next day. Not a lot of it had stuck to my guts. So it was almost like watching it again for the first time, like probably about 85% of what happens in the film I had forgotten. Well, it's been so long. It had, yeah, like 20 years. It unnerves you, it frightens you, but you can't help but be drawn to it simultaneously. You're like, oh, that creeped me the fuck out, but I want to go back there, (laughs) which is completely counterintuitive. You're also desperate to try to find the logic in it. You're trying to find like, what is it he's, what's going here? What's the story behind this? So you want to piece it together. It demands multiple viewings. And I saw it in the theater at least two or three times. Like you've got to just keep taking it in. And every time I watch it, I, I pick up something new very intriguing film to dissect. To me, that's that's a sign of a great film. It's something you want to rewatch and really try to understand and get behind. Well, you feel like you can get it. Like it invites you to like figure it, be the first person to figure it. It's like a treasure map or, or a treasure hunt, right? Like you can figure it out, go on Reddit and tell everybody what this movie is. Like your interpretation is going to be the correct one. I would still say Lost Highway is my number one David Lynch film because I feel like I almost got it. 
you know, like I'm almost there. A couple more viewings and I'm going to figure this one out. But that's why he's successful in what he does is he can bring the audience to the brink of understanding, but not anywhere near. He's been criticized of condescending the audience. And, I, and my counter opinion is I don't think it's that at all. I think he respects the audience's intelligence and gives them the freedom to interpret his work. I, I think there is, you know, a, one general idea that he has behind it, but he's not going to spell it out for them either. He's not going to make it easy. So this would be unequivocally your choice for best director. Yeah. And, and not just because I'm a huge David Lynch fan, but I feel like taking it from a TV pilot and then turning it to what it is now, I've just never seen or heard of anything like that before. Like completing a story that was meant to be told over probably multiple seasons is what ABC and most likely Lynch had in mind. I don't get that from the other films. The other films are like the scope is incredible. Like what those directors do is fantastic. Also very worthy of the nom. But what Lynch does here is just, you know, I get something different here that I don't get from the other films. So we've got Beautiful Mind, which is out, but we're left with Robert Altman's Gosford Park, Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring, and David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Four unique, sprawling, vibrant films that remain in the conversation today. Maybe we can find another film that probably should have been put up there so that the Academy could have gone five for five. All I have to say is Hollywood Homicide. That's all I'm going to throw in there. <laughs> so now that the nominees are spoken for, the only thing left to talk about are the directors who did not get nominated, but maybe should have. Let's start with Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. After the psychotic pace of the first 30 minutes, when the movie kind of calms down, I was able to appreciate some of it. It arrests your attention, whether that be annoying or captivating. I'll leave that up to you. I find it mostly annoying. But it makes me think of a class I took in college with a guy named Phil Dickinson. And in his class, I wrote at the time what I felt was the best essay I'd ever penned, a cursory analysis of the mise-en-scene in Fight Club, specifically the chemical burn sequence. I really liked this professor and I wanted to give him something great. I worked very hard on this paper. I think I got a 96% on it too. I've got it somewhere. This guy was British. He loved movies. And though he was very much an introvert, he always entertained me if I came by his office. During one of these conversations, he and I got to talking about Fight Club and, you know, the existential crises of the film and consumerism and all that shit. And we talked at length about death and mortality since the scene that I wrote about was so centered on that. And all of a sudden, apropos to nothing, as if he'd been aching to say it, he just blurted out, Fight Club is the cinematic equivalent of window shopping for ideologies. I think he called them ideologies too. He called it image heavy, intellectually shallow. I was fucking crushed. You know, Fincher was my dude and I'll still defend Fight Club to this day. But the older I've gotten, the more I, I see his point and that's kind of how I feel about Moulin Rouge. Well, all I can say is fuck you and your professor that you wrote in on. Whoa. <laughs> I love Fight Club. It's my second favorite movie of all time. And I love Moulin Rouge. It's one of my top five favorite romance movies of all time and probably one of the best musicals of the 21st century. If we want to talk about style and directing, nobody can pull off Polinick the way that Fincher could. And there's evidence of that. And nobody can do Moulin Rouge the way that Lerman did. I didn't know until researching for the show that it's called a jukebox musical, which is fun. Yeah, like uh, Mamma Mia. Yeah, I think that's the style Joker 2 is going to be. Moulin Rouge is Alexandre Dumas' La Dame au Camélie, which I vividly remember discovering while donating plasma in 2002, having had to read Camille for my theater history class and coming upon the line of, I paid my home. And I was like, no shit. 
I absolutely adore this movie. I recently sang the first part of the Elephant Love Medley for a coworker who is down on love at the moment. I was like, love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Come what may, I belt in the car. You and McGregor's This Is Your Song, I challenged Elton John's. This movie could knock me up. I love it so much. So yeah, hope you and your professor step in dog shit. I think Romeo and Juliet would be my go-to Lerman film. I really love that adaptation. I was looking for more of that even with Moulin Rouge, which I enjoy, but it's not one that I go back to a lot. It's it's, it's great seeing, you know, Kidman and McGregor on screen. And, but I just, I, have I don't know. I tickets to the Broadway play coming if you want to go. Is that right? Well, you know what? I just changed my mind. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I, I have not seen Australia. However, I heard that he's doing like a super long extended cut for Netflix. So I don't know when, but that's the rumor. I love you and McGregor, especially as Obi-Wan Kenobi. But I want to punch him in the face when he sings. For some reason, with his like gaping mouth... Oh, <laughs> and musical notes coming out. I just want to fucking punch him in the face, and I don't. But know the why. way his teeth line up, I'm I'm the opposite spectrum of you. The way his teeth line up, I'm like that man has got a beautiful, beautiful, oh, beautiful. massage. I don't know. He looks like a somebody's got their hand up his ass. Better suited for Grimes in Black Hawk Down, perhaps than than oh, a single yeah. lead. Oh, train spotting or train spotting. <laughs> <laughs> But yes. no, I like like John Leguizamo in this film. Like all the little idiosyncrasies, you could watch this film over and over and discover something new. They knew that their villain was gonna look like a mouse, and they definitely moused him up, but not so much that he looks like you know a character from Whoville, but like close enough. Roxanne, the whole swing sequence, the choreography there, being able to put up Moby in this time and just kind of like make it work like every beat. And then the fact that it's a love story between a writer and a woman, a courtesan, a prostitute who is dying of consumption. In reality, she was dying of syphilis, but it's this romantic love story that, spoiler alert, doesn't have a happy ending. Yeah, I love this movie. Is that the way burlesque shows were? Like you could just go backstage and fuck anybody? Like what were these places? Well, that's was most of the people in like Shakespearean times most of the actors in Shakespearean times they were prostitutes and so you would see them on stage and then like the old rich folk in the audience would go backstage and fuck the actors that they wanted to that they uh, would pay for I never knew that's so, my, my, my theater experience as well I like to throw in it was just like <laughs> That's accurate, what he's he's talking. All right. So that brings us then next to a film called Memento, which is directed by a sort of unknown director. He's made a few films. People have sort of dug him. His name is Christopher Nolan. What do we say about this movie, which was introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours, Joe, who called it simply the backwards movie? Bro, there's this movie coming out. It's completely backwards. I'm like, how the fuck does that work? And then there it was. He had nabbed the Oscar nomination for the best adapted screenplay from his brother's short story, but he didn't win. Remember, I was pretty worked up about that. But yeah, this was it's <laughs> hard. It's it's hard to to believe that like he's gone from Memento to you know like the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, Interstellar, like the, the scope of films is like just like. Poof. But way back when, his original trilogy, it was like his Nor trilogy. You had Following, Memento, and then Insomnia, which I think is incredibly underrated. I know a lot of Nolanites think it's his weakest film. I think it's great. It goes so well in his first trilogy. Thematic trilogy, not obviously. Connected storylines. Yeah. But I I think Memento is the strongest of the three. I still love watching, try to watch it maybe once a year. It's a very melancholy, very sad film to watch, but also just gripping the way the story unfolds backwards. And even though you've seen it, you know how it ends. You're still like, I just feel awful for this guy, but I don't at the same time. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. Who cares if there's a few little details you'd rather not remember? 
What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. Your wife surviving the assault. Her not believing your condition. The torment and, and pain and anguish tearing her up inside. The insulin. That's Sammy, not me. I told you about Sammy. Yeah, right. Like you tell yourself over and over again, conditioning yourself to remember, learning through repetition. Sammy let his wife kill herself. Sammy ended up in an institution. Sammy was a con man, a faker. I never said that Sammy was faking. You exposed him for what he was, a fraud. But I was wrong, that's the whole point. See, Sammy's wife came to me. Sammy didn't have a wife. It was your wife who had diabetes. wasn't diabetic. You sure? Ouch. Cut it out. She wasn't diabetic. Not to jump the gun, but this would be my pick for slotting up for a Best Director nomination. It's almost a slap in the face that it got nominations for Best Screenwriting and Best Editing without the Best Directing, because we all know that the film is shaped in three different ways. It's shaped on the page, it's shaped in the editing room, and it's shaped on set. So like right. the fact that they nominated it for Best Screenwriting and Best Editing, they're kind of like, Christopher Nolan, you fucked up as a director. And I don't think he did. I mean, if you look at like the budgets, even this is $6 million less of a budget than Mulholland Drive. And I think he, with the budget that he had, pieced together a really great film. And I am constantly saying, I think Christopher Nolan needs the purse strings snatched from him because I think he is better as a writer, as a filmmaker, when he has lower budgets, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to films like The Following and Memento. Our social media just posted this morning that Hollywood economists believe that his new film Oppenheimer is going to need to make roughly $400 million to reclaim its budget. I don't see that happening. But I mean, like, what are they saying? Like, it's a $400 million budgeted movie? I suppose that's another way of putting it. I, that I think, seems like astronomically... <laughs> But then well, his last films have been that expensive, so I guess it adds up. Yeah, I mean, it's a historical biopic, and I, I think historically, at least box office-wise, I don't know if they always tend to do that well. I'm thinking of like Leo Dio and The Aviator. It's risky. I mean, I can see why they went with it, because Nolan is, is a household name when it comes to directors. I'm sure it's going to be great. But as far as recouping all of that, I agree with, with Spro. I, I miss the days when he was operating on a very small budget, and it was really just the strength of the script that propelled the film. Not that I mind uh, an interstellar or inception by any means, but clearly the higher the price tag of the film, the greater the risk there is, especially with Tenet did not do nearly as well as he had hoped. Based off of the two movies that you just put out, Interstellar is his best script. I didn't really like the movie, but as far as a read goes to read Interstellar, you're like, this should have been an eight part limited series. Like it is fantastic uh, screenplay and Inception, I think is one of his worst. I'm not going to poach the complaint that everybody else has about just pages and pages of exposition. But one drawback of all that exposition is if you're listening closely, it becomes pretty clear where it's going. I mean, my wife and I, before we were married, we watched The Prestige. 20 minutes in, I guessed one half of the ending and she guessed the other half of the ending. And Interstellar, when he's saying goodbye to his daughter and, you know, the book, I don't even remember what the book does. It like opens. It just falls and, off. It falls off. Yeah. Of immediately you're like, okay, well, that was him. And Inception, when they're like, you can get stuck on a dream. It's like, well, I wonder what's going to happen, <laughs> you know? But with Memento, you're just like, the editing is just yeah. off well the deserved. fucking 
chain, no the way in which you keep going backwards in time 10 minutes, but it's cross cut with the black and white sequences where you're like, well, when is that taking place? And then by the end of the film, they meet up. Well, if you read the script, the script is in different fonts, whether or not it's going to be in color forward or, you know, black and white. Backwards. I appreciate like, that. I appreciate Oh my that. gosh. It was, it was a clever read even. So like, I really like that. I just want to make one point about the prestige because we're never going to talk about that film again. The prestige would have benefited from some David Lynchian. Let's just let the audience figure it out because once they explain the trick, you're kind of like, oh, that wasn't that clever to begin with. <laughs> and right. that's what, and that's how magic is. Once the magician goes, well, this is all I do. You go, oh, well then fuck you, bro. Yeah, like, I'm not watching that again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like if Nolan didn't describe how it was all done, that movie would have been 10 times better. So Memento is the one that I put up. Good. I agree with you completely. You would take Beautiful Mind or Robert Altman, Don't but you, you guys dare. like Robert Altman. So I guess we can all fall asleep watching Gosford Park together. Poor Gosford <laughs> Park. I tried so hard. <laughs> so the next film on our list comes to us from France and from director Jean-Pierre Genet, and it is Amelie. This is quite the beloved film. I had never gotten around to it until this episode. Our mutual friend, once upon a time, told me that this was her favorite movie of all time. And I trust her taste in film, and I was excited to watch this, and when I watched it, it was fine. This movie is so beloved, so celebrated still. I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's it's visually appealing. It's sweet. It's almost like it's almost like if they made the movie Babe in France mm-hmm. and instead of a barnyard full of animals, it was people and Babe was played by a cute woman with a smirk. Threw some sex in there too, just to spice oh, yeah. it up. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where she's getting pounded and she's like, <laughs> not babe, enjoying babe this. <laughs> I think with Amelie, I had this, fuck, I was not a girlfriend, somebody I was seeing, somebody I took to Titanic in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. You know, really great girl. I dug her a lot and she was the one that introduced me to The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. 16 Candles of John Hughes and Amelie. And it was one of, oh my gosh, like, you know, I have never met a cinephile wrapped in a beautiful lady since. So you ever have those films where you see it with a special person Mm -hmm. and you like, you immediately dig the film and then you see it alone and you're like, I liked it better seeing it with that special person. Right, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's not a that word is, for it, but yes. I'm sure there's a Japanese word for it or something like that. But like, oh, I get yes, it. That is Amelie for me. But like in the same instance, I would say Amelie is my favorite non-Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson film. And this came out in 2001, so this came out the same year that Royal Tenenbaums did. Yep. You know, like, I like Amelie. I like Amelie probably for the first 70% of it, and then it starts to kind of drag. But it Amelie does. to me is like, if Wes Anderson and directed extremely loud and incredibly close. It just seems like that kind of a hunt of a movie. And I would recommend it to anybody. But as far as, and I've been on record on this podcast saying it, it's hard for me to, other than best picture, or I definitely can't do best performance. If I am reading the movie on the bottom of the screen, I'm not necessarily like looking at what else is on the screen. And so it's hard for me to be like, yes, this is best directing when I was distracted for half of it because I had to read it. I mean, that's my American education non-bilingual <laughs> i really prefer his other i prefer the city of lost children and a very long engagement to amelie so much more those two i'd like to go back to multiple times amelie it's it's like lisa it's very very nice <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's like 
like, you're a nice guy, but, you know, it's okay. It does the least for me. Like, I love the City of Lost Children. Just visually, it's such a trip. And then a very long engagement, I just find a lot more emotionally engrossing. Oh, I love that movie. I've yeah. never seen I've never seen City of Lost Children. Oh, yeah. If you want, like, a little a little lynch in there with your, uh, your French impressionism, then that's the direction you should go. And it's great. Amelie's, it's fine, but I don't love it. If it was on TV, I, I would probably change the channel. Not because I hate it. Just kind of like, oh, yeah, this movie, it's nice. And I'd watch I, I, the beginning. I, then I would be like, okay, I'm sorry, I get tired. And I would. Oh, with the monologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 That is nice. It's really nice. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> Am I dead wrong? Did this director also step up for Alien 4, Alien you're, Resurrection? You're, you are dead right. It's uh, Alien Resurrection, which yeah. is not great. What? <laughs> what? You don't like you, the part where the alien's skin gets sucked off and then- he, The skull is, yeah. It's, oh my God, starts, I almost cried. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. very strange, which you know is in line with, with everything else that Jeanette, Jeanette. Uh, has made, but it's not my favorite John Pierre movie. It's not my favorite Alien film either. But I'm sure we. Yeah, can get but it was it was cool to take it that other direction and make it this like comic booky. It's super late '90s, like it screams get, yeah. screams late '90s. Winona to get Ryder, away from the, the Alien Three, like the dark, the really dark nihilistic uh, tone of Alien Three, it was going in a different direction. I'm like, okay, let's try something new. I need to rewatch it. It's been a long time. It's probably oh. been as long as you've seen Mulholland Drive. So yeah, all right. Well, so maybe you should watch it. I'm planning on it with some donuts and decaf. I'm planning. Plan- That's so cute. It is. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Uh-huh. I guess there's really only one other one that I would like to talk about with any kind of depth. And it is Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. You've seen this one, Joe, right? I have, yeah. I, it's it's probably my favorite del Toro film. I like it more than Pons Labyrinth, I think. Oh my if, gosh, if, if really? Not, if, if not, it's right up there. I really, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Because I've seen his other films, and this is the one I would go back to. And like, wow, it just really, I think for me, it would be up there with Pons Labyrinth as the two best. So where does Kronos rank then? Top five. It, it was a very original, eccentric story on kind of vampirism and immortality, but not. And Ron Perlman's great in it like he usually is in Del Toro stuff. It, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I it, it's just got its own weird feel to it. Like, I haven't seen this before, and I like that. So The Devil's Backbone, for those of you that have never seen it, is a Spanish-language film. Pretty low budget. This is before Guillermo had really blown up pre-Pan's Labyrinth. And is it Pan's? Is that why you call Pan's Labyrinth? Did I say Pan's? I meant no, Pan's. You, you keep saying Pan's. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Well, maybe Pan's Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> Jean-Paul Jacques. The Devil's Backbone takes place just like Pond's Labyrinth during the Spanish Civil War. It's about a little boy who gets taken out of the line of fire of the war and put into a boy's home. It's about him slowly figuring out that this boy's home is inhabited by the ghost of a former student and or inhabitant. That's right. There's this ghostly presence of this, this boy that had lived there that was killed, obviously tragically, but we don't know how. And his story kind of unravels for the characters and for the audience. And then we kind of start to see the struggle between the dickish caretaker, whatever he does, and then the, the headmaster, I think. And, you know, until the final confrontation at the end, which is really heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. The, the shadow of the old man kind of like watching them leave the, the orphanage. Just, yeah, there's like a lot of great moments. This movie the- went a direction I was not expecting. I mean, it sets up the mystery, which any mystery film, my favorite part of the mystery is where you have no idea what's going on. But the reveal for the mystery is like, okay, yeah, of course it went down like that. It's not 
not incredibly exciting when you find out what happened to the little boy. But crosscut with that is this other storyline about these people who are trying to rob the safe that is on the grounds of this school. That is what ends up becoming prominent in the story. And obviously the two stories find their ways together. The best part about this movie, in my opinion, is the script. I love the motifs, um, especially the unexploded bomb. Rather heavy-handed metaphor, but uh, it's this constant reminder that they are not safe there. And at any time, it could go down. So if you've never seen The Devil's Backbone and you have no problem with subtitled films and you like Guillermo del Toro, I highly recommend it. I think this one is as good as Pan's Labyrinth. I, in fact, I might even I might even agree with you, Joe. It might even be better. Well, if, it's like if you like Pan's Labyrinth, you'll probably like this. See yeah. That? Yeah. Joe, did you see Nightmare Alley? No, I did not. That I have not seen. I think you would That's really- That's the newest one, right? That's one that yes. just came out. I think you would just gobble up the imagery in that movie, Joe. Okay. See it in black and white. Okay. And okay. then see it in color. Then see it with your eyes closed. And, and then, then don't watch it at all. Okay. <laughs> we'll do all of this. Then see it on mushrooms and- <laughs> All right, let's start wrapping this bad boy up. Cool. So before we get to our final discussion of who the Oscar goes to, just a few honorable mentions for Best Director. We didn't talk about Terry Zwigoff's Ghost World, which, Spro, I know you said you were like, eh, whatever. I, I like this movie. This is a lot of fun. It's always fun to see Buscemi get something more than a bit part. He's the only person to watch this film for, though. Like, oh, really? I think ScarJo and Thora Birch have great chemistry together. I feel like ScarJo should want this acting display buried. Like, this is not her best work. This is not good work. She's not the greatest of actresses. You could judge by my silence. I haven't seen this film. I'm aware of its existence. I just haven't seen it. Better Scar Joe performances, Justin Timberlake's music video, What Goes Around Comes Around. Ah, naturally. I've never seen you before. You work at the club? (laughs) Leave me alone. I'm with someone. Really? Yeah. Who? That guy over there. Look, I've never seen you before. You work at the club? I'm really bored. You're bored? Yeah. Really? Yes. So I'm boring. That's right. For me. Also like to give a shout out to Catherine Breilett's film Amasur, which means for my sister, but was released in the United States under the title Fat Girl. Have either of you watched this movie? Spro, I think I told you to stay away. No. You did I, tell me to stay away. No, I, I stayed away, but no one told me to do that. It is one of the most upsetting movies I've ever seen. If you ever get around to watching it, you'll be like, this isn't that bad. Just wait till you get to the final five minutes of it. And even the tagline for this movie is Catherine Breilett's latest provocation. So this is a movie made by someone who set out to upset people and it worked. There isn't one male character in this movie that is worth a fucking wooden nickel. Next would be Richard Linklater's Waking Life. Ah. You like that one? Yeah, that's... Um, I like Because he made a couple of the films with that visual side. He did that and he did that Scan- Philip K. Scanner, Dick. Scanner Darkly. Yeah. And then they started having all those commercials that had the same like little like wavy animation. It was like, all right, enough. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's different. I, I, I did like that one. It's, a, it's an interesting, trippy, philosophical film but that was big when we were in college i remember we were friends with several art students and all of them were like oh they got waking life bro waking life waking life and i was dude, like dude man ah. i named a kid waking life yeah. <laughs> 
Next is Jonathan Glazer's Sexy Beast. What a great script. The direction is good. It felt at first like I was stepping into a Guy Ritchie film, but it becomes so much more. This film could and should be transferred to the stage. It would be fucking brilliant. It's on my list of things to do. It's the classic story of a guy who was in the life, retired from the life. He's got a nice pad. He's got a pile of money. He can do what he wishes and live peacefully. And then somebody tries to drag him back into the world for one final job. But it doesn't go that way. That's all I'll say. It's streaming currently now on Hulu. Okay. And the only other honorable mention that I have is Mark Forster's Monsters Ball. I don't know how I feel about this. I like the first half of this movie, but the second half- It's been a while. Hancock referred to a movie earlier this season as tragedy porn, and I feel like this is the poster child. Enemy at the Gates. Like I know it's not a great film. I get some Snickers. That's fine. I love that war film. It's not Black Hawk Down good, but it's just- Jude Law and Ed Harris, like snipers facing off in Russia. I mean, come on. It's great. Is great that, James Horner score. Is Rachel. that Edward Zwick? No, no. That was that that was another French director, not John uh, Pierre, but uh I don't know. A very entertaining film. Not it felt maybe, it felt Zwicky to me, like a like a siege or a, like glory. Uh, well, maybe a little less like glory, but yeah, it felt like yeah. No, I there's a there's an audience for that movie. People love that movie. I just couldn't get it's, into it. You're like people who saw Jean Jacques Anouad. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. The, guy the best is, sniper film that I think is out there. I don't know of a better one. Better than Sniper with Tom Berenger? Oh, God, and Billy Zane. Yeah, much better <laughs> than Better than, than American Sniper with the baby. Yeah, I, I'd still go with Enemy of the Gates. I, I think it's, it's a very entertaining World War II movie. I take it. That's my pick. All right. Audience, we know that you're tired, but we still have one last thing to do, and that's to decide who gets this Oscar that we have taken from Opie. I've got it down to two. Joe, if you would like to go first and give us... <laughs> Well, I mean, it's up to you. You want to go first or you want us to go first, Joe? You want me to list my top two, top three? Yeah, go with, your, three. go with your top three. Okay, so well, obviously, Mulholland Drive gets the, the number one vote for me. But the number two is extremely difficult because after rewatching all of them recently, I'm torn between Fellowship and Black Hawk Down for number two. Because I watch Fellowship so frequently, like all the time. Black Hawk Down, I watch it maybe once. Because it's a, it's a tough film to watch sometimes, let's be honest. It's, it's not like, yeah, I'm going to sit down with yeah. my coffee and my decaffeinated coffee and donuts and watch Black Hawk Down. I mean, it's like, it's brutal, but it's great. I know, I, I think the bigger risk was with Fellowship and shooting the trilogy together back to back to back. And I would give Fellowship my number two, Black Hawk Down. Number three, an honorable mention to Gosford. I came to the episode thinking Memento was actually my number one. And then Joe said something about the scope of things. And then that immediately triggered in my mind that Peter Jackson had no experience with something the size that he did. Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring had no business being as good as it was. And so I'm going to go Fellowship number one, Memento number two, and then Gosford Park. Oh, sure. d- no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just finish that sentence for you. Uh, Moulin Rouge number three. As much as I love Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, I'm not putting it in my top three. My number three would be Memento. My number two would be Gosford Park. And my number one would be Mulholland Drive. Bold choices. People might accuse me of placating our guest and putting Mulholland Drive number one, and they can do that. I feel placated. So. Mulholland Drive, like I said earlier, it's affecting. It's affecting on a timeline. It just sticks to me, just like Lost High. Highway and just like that third season of Twin Peaks. 
and Mulholland Drive, though not my favorite David Lynch, I think I'd still go with Lost Highway. Did you want to add a button to why David Lynch and Mulholland Drive deserves this Oscar? Yeah, the Oscar goes to the director who takes the most risks, the one who gives me something that I haven't seen before on the screen or I haven't seen much of that kind of takes cinema in a new direction or a fresh direction. And a lot of these directors we've talked about did so with the films that we've, we've already discussed, but always with Lynch, it's always kind of a new approach to similar themes. There's no way anyone else could get away with making that a film or doing that with a failed TV pilot. From what it sounds like, we may not see another film from him like this, at least not in the theaters, which is a shame. Well, you've got me incredibly excited at the prospect of that Netflix series. I hope it's not sitting in Netflix purgatory right now. Me too. Jeff, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. It feels like this is the first time that Lee has somebody on that shares his own sentimentalities with movies because Lee has said some like really outlandish stuff on this show. Like, you know, Remember the Titans was a bad movie and that Philip Seymour Hoffman is overrated. Maybe we can get a super cut put together <laughs> of all my... And so like the guests kind of like, like leaned my way. And so I really enjoy the fact that I was in the minority and I don't know whose voice I was representing for this show, but what I want to remind the audience whether or not they were on my side or not is that we can all agree that David Lynch deserved the award over Ron Howard and if you don't agree with us on that this might not be the podcast for you (laughs) because he did not deserve the nomination over people like Christopher Nolan for Memento. He was invited to the party because he put together a competent film where David Lynch should have been on the stage because he put together something superior. Not to mention, this was a tough year to decide something like this for. There was a lot of good movies. Oh, yeah. I was happy to revisit some of them. Gosford Park's something I got to own now. If you want to borrow my copy of Moulin Rouge, you can. I got the, you know, oh, the double disc set that's that really comes with the you. soundtrack. Oh. There's two soundtracks. One that has Bolero on it, which is the end credit sequence. Joe, you were wonderful. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This was a blast. Well, you'll have to come back. You kept up with us pretty well and just amazing to hear your insights. Well, likewise. You got such a great voice. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Voice, but a face for podcasts. And with that... <laughs> Just block out the face and you guys will be fine. (laughs) Before we go, Joe, you got anything going on you want to tell people about? Sure. Just finishing up my horror novel, which is as of now untitled, or at least I'm not settled on a a single title. I'm just working on getting it out for publication, hopefully next month. But I'm very excited to get it out there. We'll see what happens. Can we read your writing anywhere? So I've got a couple short stories published on an online magazines. I've got The Last Golden Hour, which Spro and I have been trying to adapt for the big screen. <laughs> and that's that's a work in progress, but that's on Coffin Bell Journal and Novel Noctule. And then I've got the Trash Pickers on the Piker Press and a couple other stuff coming out soon. So uh, that's awesome, links man. coming if anybody wants them. So yeah. Yes, you give us the links and we'll make sure we put them out there. All right. That sounds great. Well, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for being here one last time. And only one thing left to do, and that's say that I am Lee. I'm Sprout. I'm Joe. And we hope to- <laughs> and we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Here's a little story about someone that you know He was a right famous fella by the name of Russell Crowe I was working at a pub, he was smoking at the bar That's a crime is all you know in California 
So when are we going to be back? We will be back October 24th. And oh my gosh, next time we have an explosion of guests all coming on to talk about their favorite horror movies and what they think was overlooked by the Academy and discuss why the horror genre so rarely gets recognized. But what can everybody do until October 24th? Well, they can subscribe if they haven't already. Uh, They can leave the rating for the show, which I suggest five stars. They can also review the show. (laughs) I (laughs) second that. Okay. Uh, They can review the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. They can be as creative as they want with their positive review. We would love to read creative, positive reviews. Especially the positive part. If you're an InstaKid, please follow at Take on the Academy. You'll get updates about the show, lots of cinema posts about what we'll be talking about, what we have talked about. And if you like emailing still, you could send those to Take on the Academy at gmail.com. We hope you hear us again soon. So I sidled up the rail, right to where he stood. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Crow, as nicely as I could. You'll have to put that out now, throw it on the floor. If you don't, I'll kick you out and show you to the door. Well, he squared right up to me, somewhat in surprise. Then he narrowed up his gaze, shot me daggers with his eyes. If you think you're man enough, go ahead, he said. I was scared for my life, so I docked him in the head. The closest I've come to ending up dead was the night that I punched. Russell Crowe, the gladiator in the